title of my message today is The Arrow of the Lord's Victory. The Arrow of the Lord's Victory. How many of you like victory? How many of you like defeat? Let me try the first question again. How many of you like victory? I do! I have a victory message today. We've had some real battles during this time of fasting and prayer. We're going to have more. But I want to assure you today, the Lord is always victorious. He's been speaking to us about His victory. And I want you to turn with me to a very interesting portion of Scripture in the Old Testament to kick us off. 2 Kings chapter 13. And I'm going to read from verse 14 all the way down to verse 25. 2 Kings 13 from verse 14 to 25. says, Now Elisha was suffering from the illness from which he died. Jehoash, king of Israel, went down to see him and wept over him. My father, my father, he cried, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Elisha said, get a bow and some arrows. And he did so. Take the bow in your hands, he said to the king of Israel. When he had taken it, Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. Open the east window, he said. And he opened it. Shoot, Elisha said. And he shot. The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Aram, Elisha declared. You will completely destroy the Arameans at Aphek. Then he said, take the arrows. And the king took them. Elisha told him, strike the ground. He struck it three times and stopped. The man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have defeated Aram and completely destroyed it. But now you will defeat it only three times. Elisha died and was buried. Now Moabite raiders used to enter the country every spring. Once while some Israelites were burying a man, suddenly they saw a band of raiders, so they threw the man's body into Elisha's tomb. When the body touched Elisha's bones, the man came to life and stood up on his feet. Hazael, king of Aram, oppressed Israel throughout the reign of Jehoahaz, but the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion and showed concern for them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To this day, he has been unwilling to destroy them or banish them from his presence. Hazael, king of Aram, died, and Ben-Hadad, his son, succeeded him as king. Then Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, recaptured from Ben-Hadad, son of Hazael, the towns he had taken in battle from his father Jehoahaz. Three times Jehoash defeated him, and so he recovered the Israelite towns. Let me give you a little background here. Hopefully you understand what's going on here, but let me 
give you a little bit of a historical uh, background so you understand what's happening. Of course, everybody knows who Elisha the prophet is. And the prophets in the days of the kings had a very close relationship with the kings, as we can see here. And we're going to look at this more carefully, but the time frame we're looking at here, if you go back 44, almost 45 years in time, the same prophet Elisha had sent word to this king Jehoash's grandfather, a man named Jehu, and sent word that Jehu was to be anointed the new king over Israel. Forty-four years have passed since all of that, and Jehu's son, who's mentioned in the scriptures we just read, Jehoahaz, has now died, and his son, Jehoash, is the king of Israel. Let me give you a little bit more background. At this time, the kingdom of Israel has for many years been divided. There's what's known as the northern kingdom of Israel. They had their own kings. They were based in Samaria. And then the southern kingdom that was the kings of Judah remained centered in Jerusalem and roundabout. So we're going to see in a moment the kings from both the north and the south in part of this story. But the story centers around Jehoash, the king of Israel, the northern king, and the prophet Elisha. And, of course, Jehoash has a great love and a great respect for the prophet Elisha. He knows the history that this man has had, not only in his own family, but in the kingdom. And he, of course, would have known that it was Elisha who called and anointed his grandfather, Jehu, uh, many, many years before. Now Elisha is on his deathbed. He's suffering from an illness. He's about to die. And Jehoash, the king, comes down to see him. And the king before Jehoash, his father Jehoaz, wasn't really a very great king. And even Jehoash isn't a real spiritual king. We wouldn't put him up there uh, with other great kings uh, mentioned in the Old Testament. But one thing we can see, at least he had a respect and he had a certain affection for the prophet Elisha, and he wanted to come and see him before his death. And interesting, when he first gets there and sees the prophet, it says he saw him and he wept over him, and he said, My father, my father, he cried, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Familiar phrase, right? Who said that? Uh Uh-oh. Bible quiz time. When Elijah was taken up to heaven and his mantle fell on Elisha, these were Elisha's very words. 
So there's something very special about the fact that the king remembers those words and he's now saying them to Elisha. In other words, just as your predecessor Elijah was taken up into heaven, he recognized Elisha is about to go. And in all of his weakness and near death now, Elisha tells the king, get a bow and some arrows. What a strange thing for a man on his deathbed to say to the king. And let me say something interesting about Elisha. Pastor Quasi asked all those to stand who want to serve the Lord. That's good. Be available all the time. Doesn't mean God's going to use you every day. Forty-four years have passed since we've last heard of Elisha in the Bible. I find that profound. And sometimes we get this idea that these prophets and even coming into the New Testament, the apostles and other leaders, we have this feeling that they were raising the dead every day, walking on water every day, working signs and wonders every day. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. They weren't. But there are often long periods of time between one miracle and the next time we even hear about Peter or Paul or one of these other prophets or apostles. What's my point? Sometimes we get all agitated and we're all worried. God hasn't used me in the last three days. Well, we don't know what was going on with Elisha for 44 years. I presume during those 44 years, he did what he always did. He worshipped God. He listened to God. He talked to God. He walked with God. And whether God had a special prophecy for him to deliver, we don't know. But 44 years have gone by, we know nothing at all about Elisha. But oh, does he go out with a bang. His last and final prophecy is a message of victory to the king, and I believe it's for you and me also. And his perhaps greatest miracle happens after he died. <laughs> his you got to get this. His dead bones, dried up bones in a cave, raised a dead man to life. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Come on, wake up in here today. His bones raised a man back to life. Glory to God. You talk about resurrection power. It was still residing in the marrow of his bones. This guy was filled with the power of God. And he goes out with a bang. Now, what a strange message he delivers to this king. Let me give you one more piece of historical background so you can understand what's going on here. The northern kingdom where Jehoash was, they had continual wars with Aram or Syria. In the Hebrew, it's the word Aram, but it's referring to Syria. These guys were always harassing Israel. There were always wars and fights between them. And so 
the message that Elisha is bringing to the king is a message of lasting victory over the Arameans, over the Syrians. And he gives him a very detailed message, step-by-step things that the king is to do. And I, I want you to try to get this picture in your mind. Here's this old prophet laying on his deathbed telling the king what to do. <laughs> and I want us to look very carefully at each step in the message that the prophet has for this king. First thing he tells him in verses 15 and 16 is get a bow and some arrows. Get a bow and some arrows. And then take the bow in your hands. I think it's very significant. Get it into your hands. We've been hearing a lot in the last three weeks about warfare. When Daniel set his face to seek God in Daniel chapter 10, that's where we get this Daniel fast from, I don't think Daniel fully understood what he was getting involved in. But he was entering into the crosshairs of real spiritual warfare. And maybe you didn't sign up for that. But when you fast and pray, let me tell you something, you start to stir some demons up. And I don't, I'm not rejoicing that any of us have had difficulties or challenges during these last three weeks. But sometimes I just kind of laugh because I've seen it year after year after year. When we fast and pray and get filled with the Holy Spirit, let me tell you something, the devil starts to shake and tremble. Things start to get shaken up. It doesn't bother me when I see that happening because I know victory is coming. I know God is on the move and I know He's shaking the foundations of hell. And I'm encouraged to keep pressing in even after today, even after tomorrow. I'm going to keep pressing for victory. Now, take the bow in your hands. The message for you and me is you better find out what your weapons are. You better know your armor and you better get familiar with how to use it. Don't wait until you're out in the middle of the battlefield and say, somebody please show me how to shoot an arrow. You better practice. You better be like David and say, Lord, teach my hands to war and my fingers to fight. I want to be experienced in warfare. Teach me how to put on the whole armor of God. Helmet of salvation. Breastplate of righteousness. Help me to get the belt of truth around me. Let me do this every day. Let me put on the preparation of the gospel as shoes. And let me not forget the shield of faith with which I can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the devil. But then, then, Learn how to use the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Know your weapons. Know what God has given to you. The Bible says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They are not worldly. They're not human. They're not the weapons that the people of this world are using, shouting and violence and protest and all this stuff. We don't use those weapons. We have something better. 
We have mighty weapons. These powers are invested with divine, these weapons are invested with divine power. The Bible says they can demolish strongholds. We have weapons that can blast apart the kingdoms of darkness, can pull down powers and principalities and thrones that are over Washington, D.C., over the metro area, over, over the whole U.S. of A. and over the world. Do you realize what we see happening in the country is just a reflection of what's going on in heavenly places? We put so much attention on people and on fleshly, carnal, worldly stuff. But behind it all is another world that Paul talks about. Powers, principalities, thrones, dominions, spiritual evil and darkness in heavenly places. You can shout at them all you want. You can curse them and use all the carnal weapons in the world. They're not going to flinch. They're not going to do anything. Oh, but when we start to find out what God has given to us, the blood of Jesus Christ, the Word of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, oh my goodness, we've got mighty weapons. And sometimes you get so filled with the power of God, you get so filled with this feeling of victory, you're looking for a demon to cast out. You're like, come on. Come on. I know who I am in Christ, and I know what he's put in my hands. I've got a bow, and I've got a sharp arrow. It's the arrow of the Lord's victory. All right, take the bow in your hands. And then, Elisha lays his hand on the king's hand. Now, I don't think the king needed Elisha to teach him how to shoot a bow. He already knew that. Whenever a prophet lays hands on somebody, it's very, very significant. And the Bible doesn't tell us exactly why he did it. I presume it was either to signify he was transferring an anointing to the king or a blessing or both. But laying on of hands is very significant in the Bible. So the fact that Elisha laid hands on the king's hands, I think he was saying, You've got victory now. You've got victory. Then he tells him, in verse 17, Open the east window. Very specific. You ever wonder where these prophets get these things? They don't make them up. They come from God. God has very interesting thoughts. God has some very interesting things to tell you and me to do in these coming days. Open, not just a window, open the east window. I find that highly significant for a number of reasons. What happens when you open the window? Fresh air comes in. Oh my God, we need fresh air in our lives. Open the window and let some fresh air into your life. Air speaks of the Spirit. Get that stale garbage out of your spiritual life. Get filled with the Holy Spirit. Get some fresh air moving in your life. Open the window and let God come in like a mighty rushing wind as He did on the day of Pentecost. We need to get stirred up. We need to get moving in the Holy Spirit. Open the window. And you know what else happens? He says, Open the east window. East is very, very significant in the Bible. 
East is where the sun rises. The tabernacle always faced toward the east. And the Bible tells why, because that's where the sun rises. The, the very position of the church should always be facing the light, not facing away from it. Face the light. Open the window. Let some fresh light into your life. Man, have we been experiencing that during this time of fasting and prayer. Get the garbage out of your life. Get the weights and the sins and all the stuff that's been holding you down. Get it out of your life and you start to feel free. You feel like you can run and leap over a wall and do all kinds of things. Some el something else about facing east. Listen to me carefully. That's where the enemy was. Syria lay to the east of where the king and the kingdom was centered in the northern part of the kingdom. In other words, open the window and face your enemy. Face your enemy. Identify exactly who he is and where he is. And direct your attack. Direct your arrow Right where the enemy is. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, we don't go around just beating the air. I think a lot of times Christians are just beating the air. They haven't really identified what their problem is. And again, coming back to Ephesians 6, Paul says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Let me go through this again, because apparently we need to hear it a lot. Our problem is not people. Your problem is not people. Oh, Pastor, you don't know my boss, my husband, my grandson. You don't know what these people are doing to me. Hold it. You going to believe what you feel? Or are you going to believe the Word of God? This is why we keep going around in circles and we're getting nowhere in our spiritual life. We keep battling with the wrong enemy. We're using carnal weapons and we're fighting with flesh and blood. Paul says you got it all wrong. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood. Better find out who your real enemy is. The real enemy is behind the people. It's not the people. The real enemy isn't even here on earth. Paul says these guys are in heavenly places. They're in heavenly realms. These are big dudes. These are powerful, dark things. Real ugly, antichrist spirits. And we better know who they are, where they are, and how to bring them down. Otherwise, we're going to keep spinning our wheels, exhausting ourselves, Fighting against the wrong enemy. And you know who really has a good time when all that's going on? The devil. He's just sitting over there watching us. We're beating each other up. We're fighting and getting all worked up. And he's just sitting there. We're not touching him. Because we're aiming in the wrong direction. Open the east window. Find out who your enemy is what his name is, and exactly where he resides. Direct your attack. Face the light. And, you know, the East also speaks about the coming of the Lord. 
everything we do is in light of his soon return. I'll tell you why I want victory over every devil, every demon, every sin, every power of darkness. Because my Jesus is coming soon. And when he comes, I want to go up in victory. I want to go up in victory. And I want him to come back for a victorious church. Radiant, shining, full of the glory of God. Overflowing with the gifts and the power of God. And he then says, we've got the window open. We've got our direction. We're facing the enemy. Shoot! Shoot! The arrow! The arrow of the Lord's victory. You know, it's funny. I never knew this until I really got into this this last week or so. There's a play, play on words here. The word in Hebrew for arrow is teshua. Teshua. And the word for victory here is yeshua. If you know anything about Messianic Judaism, yeshua is the name for Jesus. And I'm going to show you in a minute, Jesus is God's arrow. He is the arrow. The Lord's Arrow of victory over Aram. I got some more good news for you. God has arrows. Apparently you didn't hear that. I'm going to say it again. God has arrows. Apparently some of you still didn't hear it. God has arrows, and he uses them against his enemies. Let me show you a couple scriptures. These might wake you up a little bit. You might actually get excited today. Psalm 18, verses 13 and 14. You're going to have to excuse me, but I'm fired up today. I'm ready to run around this building. I feel the power of God. I feel an anointing. Some of you need to get free. Some of you need to have chains broken off your life. You've wasted enough of your time going round and round and round in circles, Punching at all the wrong enemies. You need to find the Lord's arrow of victory for your life today. Psalm 18, verses 13 and 14. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot His arrows and scattered the enemies. Great bolts of lightning and routed them. Wait, wait, wait. Who shot His arrows? The Lord shot his arrows. My favorite one, though, is Psalm 144. God gave me a song from this psalm some years ago, which we recorded. Psalm 144. Praise be to the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war, my fingers for battle. This, of course, is David, the great warrior. He is my loving God and my fortress, my stronghold, my deliverer, my shield in whom I take refuge, who subdues peoples under me. Verse 5. Part your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. Listen to verse 6. Send forth lightning and scatter the enemies. Shoot your arrows and rout them. Reach down your hand from on high. Deliver me and rescue me from the mighty warriors, from the mighty waters, from the hands of foreigners. 
What do you do when you're in trouble? Worry? I do sometimes. Try as I may, I still find myself worrying. Tossing at night. Things going around and around in the head. You try to pray, but it's still there. Coming after you. But at some point, you learn to put your foot down. You might have to get out of bed, go downstairs somewhere, get yourself in a comfortable position, and get ready for war. And start praying like David prayed. Lord, shoot out your arrows and scatter these enemies. I'm not going to take defeat. I'm not going to take no for an answer because you've given me your promises and they're all yes in Christ. And my response to every one of them is amen. So I'm going to keep coming. I'm going to keep coming. I'm going to keep coming till victory comes. At the start of this fast, we had some interesting battles that suddenly appeared. Isn't that interesting? I won't go into all the details, but we had a very uh, complex, perplexing situation with my daughter. And let me just say this. It was a problem to the tune of about $4,000, and she was this close to losing her driver's license and registration. This thing had been going on for months and months and it was just bugging us and bothering us. And finally, I put my foot down. And she had called these people two days earlier and the lady was screaming and yelling at her on the phone saying, you owe $4,000, they're going to take your driver's license away, you're going to lose your registration and all this stuff. And she freaked out. I said, okay. We're going to spend a couple of days fasting and praying over this, and then we're going to battle. We're going to battle. I told my daughter to come over to the house, and we looked over all the information. We went online, and sure enough, there it was, $4,000. There was already a red flag that her driver's license and everything was about to be suspended. So... Picked up the phone and got ready to call. And my daughter stops me and she says, Dad, can we pray first? Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you for reminding me. And I prayed a short but very specific prayer. Because I had done some research on this and many other people that had similar problems. And horrible, horrible stories about waiting on the phone for 50 minutes only to be dropped and and like my daughter's experience, talking to nasty people that were screaming and yelling and uh, just a big mess. So we prayed. I said, Father, please help us to get right through to a customer service agent and let it be somebody reasonable with understanding and help us to get this thing resolved today on the phone. That's what I prayed. In Jesus' name, amen. Dialed the number. I'm not making this stuff up. Within 30 seconds, I'm live with Larry. Larry's an angel. Larry was the nicest guy I've spoken to in months and months and months. Nice guy. 
In 30 seconds, he figured out the whole problem, and it's too complex for me to even explain to you. He figured the whole thing out. He says, here's what's happened, here's what's happened, here's what's happened. He says, if you give me a couple minutes, I want to talk to my supervisor, and then he get right back to you. He comes back on the phone, and he says, you know, I looked over all this, da-da-da-da-da, I talked to my supervisors. I think we can get this fixed today. He says, you're not really looking at $4,000. We're looking at 398 I said, will you take a credit card right now over the phone? He says, absolutely. Done, finished, whole thing cleared up, just like that, in 10 minutes. My daughter has tears running down her eyes because she remembers the prayer. She knew God did a miracle there. She knew God did a miracle. And I've been reminding her ever since, the Lord fought for you that day. You better remember that. God will fight for you. Call on the God of David. Lord, train my hands for war. Teach my fingers how to fight. Shoot out your arrows and drive out these powers of darkness that are molesting me, harassing me, trying to devour my life away. Destroy the enemies. Our enemies are not people. So don't pray like this against your husband or your wife or your kids. Lord, shoot them with an arrow. I want to tell you something. I've had some times of prayer these last three weeks. I mean, I'm getting serious. I hate the devil. Do you? I hate sin. Do you? I hate what the devil's doing to young people. Do you? I've had some real warfare these last three weeks. And I'm starting to use my weapons. Lord, shoot at these things. Hit them right in the heart. Pierce them and destroy them. Isaiah 49. I'm going to show you most amazing portion of Scripture. If you don't hear anything else today, take this home with you. Like Pastor Ernie used to tell us, you can take this one to the bank. Jesus Christ is God's arrow of victory. He is the arrow of victory. Isaiah 49, verses 1 to 6. Everybody knows this is a messianic passage from Isaiah, meaning it's referring to Christ. Listen to what it says. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, He has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of His hand, He hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in His quiver. He said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. Drop down to verse 5. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Now some people get a little confused because it sounds like he's talking to Israel because he says you are my servant Israel, but this is a common thing that you find 
in the prophets, especially in Isaiah. But all that clears up as we read a little further. It can't possibly be literal Israel because this individual that all these verses are talking about, verse 5, is going to bring Jacob back to God and gather Israel to himself. So you can't gather yourself to yourself, if that makes any sense. And finally, in verse 6, very clearly, it's referring to the Messiah, who will be a light for the Gentiles and bring salvation to the ends of the earth. What's the point? God has an arrow in his quiver. He's got it polished. I like that. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. Quivers where you keep the arrows. This one's all shined up. It's all sharpened up. And it's ready when God wants to fire it. When God wants to release it. It's called the arrow of victory. The arrow of Yeshua. The arrow of salvation. The arrow of deliverance. The arrow, if you will, of Jesus, the Messiah. I mentioned earlier, Satan also has arrows. Ephesians 6 is very clear about that. What are you going to do about those arrows? He's firing them at you and me all the time. These are a little different. They're called flaming arrows. King James calls them flaming darts, but NIV calls them arrows. These are flaming arrows. What do you do with them? Ever been hit by one of them? I have. Boom! A doubt. Oh, God's not going to answer prayer. Boom! Another doubt. Oh, I better start worrying about this. I don't think God's going to help me with this. Boom! Another one hits. You better have on the helmet to protect your head. More importantly, he says we extinguish them with our shield of faith. Don't drop that shield for a minute. They're coming all the time. Doubts, fears, worries, things that get you off track and off focus. Keep your shield out there. Apparently the shield that Paul would have been referring to, these were big thick leather shields and they soaked them in water so they would immediately extinguish the flame on the tips of these flaming darts or flaming arrows. We need to be bathed in the water of the Word. We need to be under the anointing of the Holy Spirit and when that flaming dart comes, it's extinguished right away. Satan comes and says, your child's sick. They're never getting better. They're going to die sick. No. It is written, by His stripes, we were, we are, and we're going to be healed. My God sends His Word and He heals me. You're a liar. Get out of here. That's how you extinguish them. With the Word of God. With the truth. The arrow of victory. I don't know. I, I just, I like that. I, I, I really wanted to find a bow with a real arrow on it, but I might have hurt somebody. So maybe it's best that I couldn't. 
But I just, I don't know, I like the idea of God shooting arrows. They, they, they hit right on the target every time. They hit the real enemy and they don't fly off somewhere where they're not supposed to go. And we're certainly not just beating around in the air hoping we hit a demon somewhere. Arrows have points. They're directed. They're directed right at the heart of the enemy. Let me tell you something. Jesus Christ came to destroy every work of the devil. That was his mission, to destroy every work of the devil. When Jesus was here on earth, he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning out of heaven. He's already fallen. And he told his disciples, now, I give you power. I give you authority to tread on serpents, scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy. He cannot hurt you. And these powers and principalities that are in heavenly places, in Colossians, we find out something very important. On the cross, not in his resurrection, but on the cross, it says, Jesus disarmed them. He disarmed them and put them to open public shame. The enemies you and I are fighting, they don't have weapons anymore. They've been disarmed. We do. We have a sharp, two-edged sword. We have the arrow of the Lord's victory. That's why we're more than conquerors. These guys are already defeated. Jesus came to destroy every... Say every. Every. That might be the new word for 2017. Every work of the devil. Every work of the devil. How did Jesus deal with the devil when he was here on earth? It is written. I don't know if he got all hyped up and worked up. I don't know if he got all emotional. He just very matter-of-factly looked the devil square in the eye and said, I know the truth. It is written. It is written. It is written. Bible says Satan left for a season. For a season. What's that mean? Oh, he would come back. He would come back for some more visits. But he would get more of the same. It is written. It is written. It is written. And maybe you've gotten some significant victories during this time of fasting and prayer. That's good. But Satan leaves for a while and he waits for an opportune time, the Bible says. He might just try to mosey back in again. But we resist the devil and he must flee from us. Now, we get to the second part of the message that Elisha has for the king. He says, take the arrows. This is strange. He already shot one out of the window. Now take the arrows and strike the ground. Prophet didn't say how many times. He didn't specify how to do it. He just said, take the arrows and strike the ground. The king struck the ground. Three times. 
And he stopped. It says Elisha was angry. This guy's dying. He's on his deathbed. And he's doing this long, involved thing with the king. And now he's getting angry. The man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have defeated Aram and completely destroyed it. But now you will defeat it only three times. That's exactly what happened. He got three little victories. Now I'm going to go into some depth on this, so bear with me. We're going to have to get a little more history under our belts. But if you miss all of that, please don't miss this important point. God wants to give you and me total, complete victory. He doesn't, he's not in the partial deliverance, the partial salvation, the partial victory business. He wanted to give complete victory, but the king missed out for some reason. And we're going to have to dig a little deeper because the Bible doesn't come right out and say, why was Elisha angry? I think I can show you why though. And it might just be God gets a little upset with you and me because we're like this king. I don't know how he struck the ground, but something tells me it was kind of milk toast. It was like, I mean, he's, he's going along with all this stuff, opening the window, shooting the arrow. Maybe in his mind he's like, boy, this guy's really getting senile. I'm trying to play along with this, but, you know, how, how many more tricks we got to do here, Elisha? All right. Elisha got angry. I'm going to suggest why I believe he got so angry. Because Elisha knew this man's grandfather, Jehu. If you ever think about Jehu and you know him in the Bible, one word should come to your mind. Zeal. Zeal. This guy had a zeal for God, which this grandson apparently did not have. And I think Elisha must have been reliving those earlier days of Jehu, and maybe he was thinking how Jehu would have taken those arrows and struck the ground. We're only speculating here, but something tells me as he's laying there on the deathbed, he's having a flashback of Jehu. And we're going to go look at Jehu and see what kind of a man he was. But something tells me Jehu would have taken that arrow and gone... Anybody get hurt? The arrow of the Lord Maybe you and I are trying to fight off the devil Jehoash's way. Oh, Satan, please stop messing with my family. Oh, I'll make a deal with you. I won't fast and pray anymore if you just leave me alone. 
That's not the spirit of Jehu. Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 9. 2 Kings 9. Now, in the context, the prophet has already sent word for Jehu to be anointed the next king over Israel. Israel's in a mess at this time. They've had King Ahab and just some of the most wicked people running the land for a number of years, and it's time for a change. And so he sends word for them to anoint Jehu, and he also sends this message, which I want to read to you. Here's the word of the Lord to Jehu, 44 years before this time. Verse 6, 2 Kings 9 and verse 6. Jehu got up and went into the house. Then the prophet poured the oil on Jehu's head and declared, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anoint you king over the Lord's people Israel. You are to destroy the house of Ahab, your master. I will avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the Lord's servants shed by Jezebel. The whole house of Ahab will perish. I will cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, son of Ahijah. As for Jezebel, dogs will devour her on the plot of ground at Jezreel, and no one will bury her. Let me pause here for a minute. Let me tell you something. When God gets riled up, he gets hot. And when God starts saying stuff like this, you better look out because it's all coming to pass. Just like he says. Verse 14. Maybe it seemed like for a period of years God was absent or sleeping, but he's been watching all that's gone on with Ahab and Jezebel and all the crap that they were doing in Israel. And God says, Enough! The hour of judgment has come. I'm going to move now. Verse 14. So Jehu, son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Joram is the king of Israel at the time Jehu has just now replaced him. Joram and all Israel had been defending Ramoth Gilead against Haziel, king of Aram. Told you about them. They're always fighting with Israel. But King Joram had returned to Jezreel to recover from the wounds the Arameans had inflicted on him in the battle with Haziel, king of Aram. Jehu said, if this is the way you feel, don't let anyone slip out of the city to go and tell the news in Jezreel. Then he got into his chariot and rode to Jezreel because Joram was resting there and Ahaziah, king of Judah, had gone down to see him. Now watch this. Only God can do this kind of stuff. He's now brought both kings together. The king from the south, the Judah king, Ahaziah, and the king from the north, King Joram, for this little moment with Jehu, the new king, the newly anointed king of Israel. It gets better, though. When the lookout standing on the tower, verse 17, 
saw Jehu's troops approaching, he called out, I see some troops coming. Get a horseman, Joram ordered. Send in to meet them and ask, do you come in peace? The horseman rode off to meet Jehu and said, this is what the king says, do you come in peace? What do you have to do with peace, Jehu replied. Fallen behind me. This is a tough dude, man. Fallen behind me, the lookout reported. The messenger has reached them, but he isn't coming back. Smart messenger. He falls in behind Jehu. So I'm staying with this guy. <laughs> I'm not going back there. I feel trouble coming. So the king sent out a second horseman. When he came to them, he said, this is what the king says. Do you come in peace? Jehu replied, what do you have to do with peace? Fall in behind me. The lookout reported, he has reached them, but he isn't coming back either. Smart messenger. The driving is like that of Jehu, son of Nimshi. He drives like a madman. Oh, is this God fired up or what? How different from his grandson. He's heard a word from the Lord. You're my instrument. I'm going to use you to destroy the whole house of Ahab. He's driving like a madman to get there. Verse 21. Hitch up my chariot, Joram ordered. And when it was hitched up, Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, rode out. How interesting. Both kings now driving out to meet this madman. Each in his own chariot to meet Jehu. They met him at the plot of ground that had belonged to Naboth, the Jezreelite. Now you got to know your Bible to appreciate this. King Ahab... He was a wimp. And one day, he saw his neighbor's little vineyard, and he said, I want that for a vegetable garden. I'm going to grow some little peas and some lettuce there. So he goes across to the neighbor, Naboth, and says, I'll make you a deal. Give me your vineyard, and I'll give you some land somewhere else. I think he just expected Naboth to make the deal. Naboth knew something. He said, this land is my family's inheritance. It's my inheritance in the promised land. We're not selling it even to you, O king. This has been in our family. It's very special to us. God gave us this inheritance, and we're going to keep it, so help us God. So the king goes back to the palace, and he's moping and feeling sorry for himself. Jezebel comes home and sees him on the couch all depressed and says, What's your problem, king? He says, I want that piece of land next door for a vegetable garden, but he wouldn't give it to me. Jezebel says, Let me deal with this. Had every member of the family slaughtered. And the king gets his vegetable garden. And everybody's happy. No lightning bolt struck her or him. And I guess he figured, well, we pulled that one off. We can do some more things like this. God prophesied that on that very ground 
on the ground of Naboth's vineyard, he would bring judgment. Guess where they are now? They met him at the plot of ground that had belonged to Naboth. Verse 22. When Joram saw Jehu, he asked, Have you come in peace, Jehu? Listen to his answer. How can there be peace, Jehu replied, as long as all the idolatry and witchcraft of your mother Jezebel abound? This guy had a zeal for God. He was sick of all the witchcraft, all the murder, all the idolatry that Ahab and Jezebel had brought into the kingdom. He wants to clean all this stuff out. How can there be peace as long as this is in the land? Verse 23. Joram turned about and fled. Ah. He knows the significance. I'm on the ground of Naboth. Judgment has fallen on me and my family. He fled, calling out to Ahaziah, the king of Judah, Treachery! Look at verse 24. Then Jehu drew his bow and shot Joram between the shoulders. The arrow pierced his heart and he slumped down in his chariot. Now, I have no doubt Jehu was a good archer. But I believe the Lord directed that arrow. It was the arrow of God's judgment. And God doesn't miss when he sends one. He doesn't miss. Jehu said to Bidkar, his chariot officer, pick him up and throw him on the field that belonged to Naboth the Jezreelite. Remember how you and I were riding together in chariots behind Ahab his father when the Lord made this prophecy about him. Jehu has a zeal for the word of God. He remembers all these prophecies. Yesterday I saw the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, and I will surely make you pay for it on this plot of ground, declares the Lord. Now then, pick him up, throw him on that plot in accordance with the word of the Lord. When Ahaziah, king of Judah, saw what had happened, he goes, whoops, I'm in trouble too. He fled up the road to Beth Hagan. Jehu chased him, shouting, Kill him too! They wounded him and he died there. Let me tell you something. When God's judgment starts to fall, there's no escape. There's no escape. In a matter of minutes, two kings out. Verse 30. Jehu isn't done yet. Now he's going to move on to Jezebel. Verse 30. Then Jehu went to Jezreel. When Jezebel heard about it, she painted her eyes, arranged her hair, and looked out of a window. As Jehu entered the gate, she asked, Have you come in peace, Zimri, you murderer of your master? She already knew what had happened. 
He looked up at the window and called out, Who's on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked down at him. Throw her down, Jehu said. So they threw her down, and some of her blood spattered the wall and the horses as they trampled her underfoot. Jehu went in and ate and drank. Take care of that cursed woman, he said, and bury her, for she was a king's daughter. But when they went out to bury her, they found nothing except her skull, her feet, and her hands. This is in the Bible, folks. This is in the Bible. They went back and told Jehu, this is the word of the Lord that he spoke through his servant Elijah the Tishbite. On the plot of ground at Jezreel, dogs will devour Jezebel's flesh. Jezebel's body will be like refuse on the ground in the plot at Jezreel so that no one will be able to say, this is Jezebel. Now, why am I reading all these gruesome scriptures? I want you to see the spirit that was in Jehu. And again, we're not talking about killing people, throwing people off of walls. Our warfare is not with flesh and blood. But God is looking for some Jehus with this kind of zeal for the Lord and for the word of God. Jehu was up to here, sick of all the idolatry, all the witchcraft, all the backsliding, all the turning away from God. And he still isn't done. He still isn't done. And in, um, let's see, in 2 Kings 10, he goes on to Samaria, and if you remember the story, he throws a big party. Big feast for all the false prophets. Hundreds of them come from all over. Oh boy, we have a nice feast. All the prophets of Baal come together. And just at the right moment, Jehu issues the order, kill every one of them. This wasn't his idea. He's carrying out the Lord's orders. And listen to what he says to this uh, fellow named Jehonadab, 2 Kings 10, verses 16 and 17. You can read the rest on your own. I just want you to see this part. 10, 16. Jehu said, Come with me and see what? We've seen quite a bit already, Jehu. You got more to show us? Oh yeah. Come and see my zeal for the Lord. Then he had him ride along in his chariot. And when Jehu came to Samaria, he killed all who were left there of Ahab's family. He destroyed them according to the word of the Lord spoken to Elijah. And then he moves on and kills all the false prophets. This guy was zealous. Jesus tells us in the New Testament, be zealous and repent. Be zealous. Be zealous for God. Be zealous for truth. Be zealous for the Word of God. Stop being lukewarm and just tapping the ground a few times, hoping you get some victory. Get stirred up. 
put on the whole armor of God. God's looking for some men like Phineas. Do you remember Phineas? Back in the days of Moses, the whole nation was going wacko. They were falling into all kinds of sexual sin. They were having relations with Moabite women and the whole thing was getting corrupted. And there was a man from the priestly family named Phineas. There's no indication anybody told him to do this. He was just zealous for the Lord. He found an Israelite man having illicit sex with one of the foreign women in, in their tent. And he went into the tent and he took his spear and he ran it through both of them. You know what God said? Phineas was as zealous as I am for my honor. He was as zealous as I am for my honor. Are we zealous for the honor of God? Oh, we'll get all fired up and fight for our own rights. We'll punch and shove and kick when somebody wrongs us or when somebody says something bad about us. How about when they're cussing in the elevator? Using the Lord's name in vain. How about when people are talking all kinds of crap about Jesus Christ? Are we silent? Are we going to be like Phineas? Um, excuse me. That's my God you're talking about. That's my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's not a curse word. He's my Savior, and He died to save you too. Jesus was zealous. There was a verse from Psalm 69. It says, zeal for my father's house will consume me. And one day, the disciples connected that verse with Jesus. Anybody remember what he was doing? He went into the temple. This is sweet Jesus, you know, the Jesus we see in all the posters carrying a lamb on his shoulder. He's always so sweet and so nice and he doesn't mind it if I'm, you know, having an adulterous affair because he's so sweet and he's so nice. He doesn't mind if I'm robbing God in my tithes and offering because I'm so selfish and so stingy. God will understand. God knows what's going on. What does Jesus do? He goes into the temple. Now, I'm not going to demonstrate this one, but he starts turning tables over. He goes in there with a whip. He says, get out! Get all these doves. Get all these tables. Get all this money out of here. This is my father's house. And it's supposed to be a house of prayer. And then the disciples remembered. That was talking about Jesus. Zeal for his father's house consumed him. Oh God, give us some zeal. Give us some passion for the things of God. He says if we're going to continue to be lukewarm, he will vomit us out of his mouth. He hates lukewarmness. He can't stand it. Get hot or get cold, but don't continue in your lukewarmness. Get fired up for God. Get involved in prayer. Get involved in fasting. Get involved in preaching the word. Get involved in the kingdom. And stop 
getting all worked up about your own stuff. Oh, boy, we can be so zealous for our own cause, for our own name. Oh, did you hear what she said about me? That's my reputation. Who cares, brother? Your reputation means nothing. Start worrying about his. Start praying for his glory, praying for his name, praying for his reputation. God, for your name's sake, for your name's sake. In closing, I'd like to suggest something to you. I think what Jehoash lacked, and we've mentioned he lacked zeal, but let me explain it to you in a little bit of a different way. If you're going to fight an enemy, you've got to hate the enemy. Is that right? It's going to be hard for me to really get into a boxing match with Quasi if he's my friend. Okay? And that's why the Bible says we're not supposed to be neutral when it comes to evil. I don't care what modern society says about us being tolerant, and, you know, just kind of neutral to everything. Well, that's what lukewarmness will do to you. Makes you neutral. No, be hot or be cold. Love righteousness and hate iniquity, the Bible says. That was the testimony of Jesus. Look at Hebrews 1. We're going to run through these quickly. Most of them, I'm not even going to wait. Uh, we don't need to put them up on the screen, but this one we will. Hebrews 1, verses 8 and 9. It's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's see what Jesus was really like. But about the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness. Uh-oh. This is going to upset some people. Jesus hates. Jesus hates. He doesn't love everything. Jesus also hates. What does he hate? You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. My friend, Jesus loves you, but he hates the stuff you're doing. Amen. He hates the stuff you're doing. You better stop it. You better repent. He hates wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. The Bible says there are six things, yea, seven, that the Lord hates. What it? That the Lord hates. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. God hates it all. He hates it. Proverbs 8 tells us the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. If you and I fear God, we better start hating sin. Better start hating the devil, hating evil, hating demonic activity. I did some research last week and I came across something that has just set me on fire inside. Set me on fire. I want you to listen carefully, young people especially. This nation has 330 million inhabitants. 330 million. The center 
Centers for Disease Control, CDC, in Atlanta, the last full report that I've been able to access from 2014, that's almost three years ago now, estimates, and these are just reported cases that come in through clinics and doctors and hospitals, etc., estimate that in the U.S. of A., 110 million individuals have a sexually transmitted disease. If that doesn't stir you up, you're dead. That's one third of the population. Let me tell you something, my friends. God's heavy hand of judgment is on America. It's not something that's going to come in the future. This is God's heavy hand of judgment. And they go on to estimate that every year, and again, we've got three more years under our belt since then, so we've got to up that number. Every year it's increasing by 20 million more, mostly teenagers, playing around with immoral, illicit sex. And what they're doing is playing Russian roulette with their bodies and their souls. Many of these diseases are incurable. They're incurable. These young people will be carrying these diseases into their graves if God in His mercy doesn't give some kind of a cure for them. This is serious stuff. I'm tired of playing games. I hate the devil. And my my way of speaking to teenagers is going to be very different now. You having sex with your boyfriend? You got a one out of three chance. You want to play those odds? Be my guest. But you might want to think about doing it God's way. Repent. Run to the cross. And wait and do it the right way. Wait until you're married. Because when we violate God's law, let me tell you something, there are going to be consequences. This is heavy, folks. I can't even remember the number. Billions and billions in health care costs every year. No wonder our health care system is so taxed. Billions of dollars now for all of this. It's a curse. It's a judgment of God. And yet, we'll watch movies about this stuff, and we'll listen to our friends talk about it like it's all so much fun. Think again. Think again. Anybody here ever been beside a patient who died of AIDS? Okay, I don't need to tell you what it's like. Everybody should see that. You'll never forget it. These are very real things happening in our time. A little different from Ahab and Jezebel and all that, but it really isn't all that different because it's the same God who's zealous for his word, zealous for his truth. Where are the Jehus? Where are the Phineases? Where are the young men and young women who are going to stand up in their high schools with their peers and say, no, we're not doing it that way. We're not going with the crowd. We're going to keep ourselves pure until marriage because we want to honor God. God says in His Word, He hates divorce. He hates it. Psalm 97.10 says, Let those who love the Lord hate evil. 
Those who love the Lord hate evil. How many of you love the Lord? Raise your right hand. Then raise your left one and say, I hate evil. I hate evil. I hate immorality. I hate lies. I hate selfishness. I hate pride. I'm going to start hating all the things that God hates. Psalmist David, he says in Psalm 139, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? You know, we'll sit and watch one of these Hollywood movies and ooh and awe about the actors and the actresses. These people hate God. I'm not watching any more of them. I'm not going to fund these people who, maybe they make a nice movie, I don't know. I'm not saying anything about the movies. I'm talking about the people. People who hate God, blaspheme His name. I'm not watching their movies anymore. I'm not going to support them. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them as my enemies. Again, our enemies are not people, but it's the spirit that's behind them. You can't conquer an enemy until you really hate him. Some of you are still battling with things in your life and you're wondering why you can't overcome them. It's because you don't hate it enough yet. Ask God to give you a hatred for that sin. Ask God to give you a hatred for gossip, for slander, for backbiting, for selfishness, for pride, for love of money. You can fill in the blank. Ask God to give you a real burning hatred against that thing. And you watch how quickly you can overcome it. Finally, back to our story. The king, I think he just hit the ground three times. Prophet said you should have struck it five or six. I, I don't think there's anything magical about these numbers. I think really what he was saying, you needed a little more heart, a little more zeal. I, I was wanting to see you bang the ground the way your grandfather would have. Until the land was completely rid of Ahab. Completely rid of all the witchcraft and idolatry of Jezebel. And in closing, I want to encourage you, even as we're coming to the end of this fasting and prayer, I've been talking about this a lot on the phone. There are many examples in Scripture of this. Um, sometimes you may land a pretty good blow on the enemy. And you think, okay, enough of that. Fasting's over now. Uh, back to normal. Mm, no. Moses had to go back ten times and challenge Pharaoh. Let my people go so they can serve me. I ain't going to do it. Moses would tell him, All right, Bubba, get ready. Here comes the next plague. What do you want this time? Frogs? Gnats? Flies? Blood? What do you want? Ten times he had to go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, challenging the power of Egypt. And it wasn't really Pharaoh because when you really come to the end of the story with the Passover, what happened on the night of the Passover? God was judging the gods of Egypt. You'll find that in the scriptures. He was judging the gods of Egypt. See, our problem isn't with Pharaoh. It's not with the president or the king. 
our problem is with the gods that are ruling over that region. And we have weapons to fight against those powers, principalities. In Psalm 18 again, we read a little bit from here earlier. And here's where I'm going to read again. Psalm 18, we'll read from verse 32 to 42. Psalm 18, 32 to 42. This is David, Goliath slayer, lion killer, bear destroyer, mighty warrior David. It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to stand on the heights. He trains my hands for battle. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. You give me your shield of victory and your right hand sustains me. You stoop down to make me great. You broaden the path beneath me so that my ankles do not turn. Listen carefully to verse 37. Many Christians have this backwards. We're kind of cowering in a corner hoping the devil doesn't come after us for a while. Maybe he'll leave me alone. We've just finished this fast and I'll just mind my own business and hopefully... The devil won't bother me. No, 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 no. We got it all wrong. Jesus said on this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. Who's doing what here? We're crashing through the gates of hell. We're not waiting for hell to come after us. We're on offense. That's what David says. I pursued. Say that with me. I pursued my enemies and I overtook them I did not turn back till they were destroyed. That's the spirit of Jehu. I crushed them so that they could not rise. They fell beneath my feet. You armed me with strength for battle. You made my adversaries bow at my feet. You made my enemies turn their backs in flight. And I destroyed my foes. They cried for help, but there was no one to save them. To the Lord, but He did not answer. I beat them as fine as dust. Born on the wind, I poured them out like mud in the streets. Keep pressing. Keep praying. Keep putting on the whole armor of God. Don't accept no for an answer. Don't accept defeat. Whatever promises you've been praying over, maybe you've prayed and nothing happened. And the devil said, there, quit. Maybe the situation got worse after you prayed. Good. It means something's getting stirred up. I'm going to pray even harder now. Don't get discouraged. Don't slack off. And... Some of you, I don't know, you've been AWOL during this time of fasting and prayer. Maybe I haven't heard you on the phone. But, man, I'm sure glad I didn't miss these nights because I got some stuff. I got some stuff. I got some stuff from the Lord. And it's going to help me moving forward now. I got some real direction. I got some weapons that I can use now against the enemy. I feel sorry if people weren't on some of these prayer calls. Very significant prophetic things. We're coming out almost every night. Jesus 
is our arrow of victory. Call on His name day, night, middle of the day, middle of the night, whatever's coming against you. I like what one preacher says, if it's big enough to worry about, it's big enough to pray about. If you're worrying about it, you better translate and transfer all that energy into prayer. Put on your whole armor and start waging war against that thing and stop letting it beat you up and harass you. Keep smiting, keep attacking, keep going after the powers of darkness until they are destroyed. I want us to stand and we're going to close with that song. It's been in my spirit all weekend. The victor's crown. He wears the victor's crown. Every, what's every mean? Every. That sounded weak. Let me ask you one more time. What's every mean? It says every high thing must come down. Every stronghold broken. May that be our testimony May that be our faith as we move forward from this day. Okay, we got it? Nice and loud. There we go.